Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is CJ for the Science, Technology, and Society channel at the New Books Network. I'm here with Lucas Rickert on his book, Break On Through, Radical Psychiatry and the American Counterculture, out on MIT Press last year. Welcome, Luke. Hi. Thanks for inviting me to chat. Absolutely. So um, before we get started to talk about your book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get interested in this in this topic in the first place and anything else relevant about your background? Sure. Yeah. So it's always nice to share some ideas and work. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, asking to, uh, to have a conversation about this, I, I guess. The most uh, important thing that I I suppose I want to say about myself is that, you know, it's been a weird and wild sort of trajectory and it wasn't uh, predetermined that I was going to write this book in any way. Uh, uh, I began as a scholar of the pharmaceutical industry, actually. I was lucky enough to travel and study in Canada and Scotland and and England and uh, what really got the the journey of break on through uh, kicked off was sort of one of those awesome aha moments in the archives where you're just sitting there and then your, your mind is totally blown by some documents that you you just sort of come across. Um, For me, that was in 2008, 2009, roughly. um, And uh, these documents um, were about radicals in mental health. Um, the period was the 60s and the 70s, uh, and these radicals self-identified as radicals. And so that's what led to me sort of writing Break On Through um, as as really sort of a scholar of uh, the U.S. pharmaceutical industry and, and other sort of drugs. And, man, the lights just sort of went off, uh, and I was thinking this could be really uh, exciting project. Um, It could be a personal challenge. Um, At the time, I I didn't have a a full-time tenure-track job. Uh, At the time, uh, I was just finishing up my my PhD. And and so that was kind of of like the genesis of of this book um, as sort of like the, the very end of my graduate studies. And so, you know, that was a I guess like over 10 years ago now when I started thinking about writing the project and now here I get to talk to you about it for a little while. That's wonderful. Absolutely. So um, one thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to your book is, is the interesting way that you detail all this history because you have, you have primarily a period that you're focusing on. And while it is about psychiatry as, as the subtitle uh, illustrates, it's also about, American counterculture. It's about all these paradoxes and, and, and contradictions of this time. Um, so could you tell us a bit about how you managed to 
sort of bring in these different elements, you know, so if we could just take, for example, the first chapter on disruptions, right, where, where you deal with um, several subtopics that are related to um, this overall change happening and how uh, American society was thinking about psychiatry and mental health and things like this. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the jury's out, I suppose, on whether or not I managed it successfully or not and managed to sort of bring everything together. I What I wanted to do, Chad, uh, was, um, I guess, offer a history of mental medicine uh, from a slightly broader vantage point. You know, a lot of fascinating, important books have been written already when it comes to uh, specific disease categories, whether or not it's uh, depression or uh, migraine or, or um, you know, a lot of great books have been written about interventions, therapeutic interventions like lobotomy, what have you. Uh, you know, it could be hydrotherapy, it could be um, the asylum system. And a lot of authors have done this very well. And so I suppose my approach was to be slightly more expansive and uh, think about um, how these different ideas operated in sync, but then also departed from each other. And at the same time, what I wanted to bring into the conversation was a slightly uh, you know, cultural approach. Uh, a lot of great work has been done strictly within the realm of biomedicine. Uh, or through the sort of the lens of uh, political uh, and legislative uh, uh, history when it comes to mental medicine. So my thought was to uh, address at least what I thought was a gap. And I wanted to offer sort of cultural perspectives uh, uh, to sort of add to the conversation. Absolutely. So um, before we get into any more details of the book, I was wondering if we could you know, unpack this term radical psychiatry a bit, a bit more. So uh, looking back at some of the work of, of people that, that are brought up in your book, like Steiner and Lang and, and May, others, um, how might we define radical psychiatry and how, how does it differ from anti-psychiatry discourses that, you know, uh, were around the same time period and, and continue today, um, including Scientology and other Another case that's brought up in your book. Yeah, sure. I mean, really good questions, uh, really tough questions. So thanks for nothing. Yeah, I mean, you, what your, your question does, our questions, uh, I suppose, do is point really to the how complicated uh, mental medicine was um, in the 60s and the 70s. And I don't want to suggest that it was uncomplicated in other eras, uh, right. No, in fact, um, I think it's always been a fairly um, complex uh, admixture. But look, so radical psychiatry still exists in the APA, so it didn't go away. And, you know, I've, I've been in touch with members uh, relatively recently, so it's not also like it just sort of disappeared uh, either. Um, you know, what I wanted to do... Um, with break on through sort of describe just how multifaceted the era really was. And um, so mental health knowledge uh, practices um, were super contested and that was within the APA. 
and but it's the same outside of the APA too. So um, in answering your question about what is radical psychiatry, you, you can come at it a couple different ways. Uh, defining radical psychiatry is super thorny. So on the one hand, there's the sort of specific self-described radicals. So that's the radical caucus within the American Psychiatric Association. They called themselves a radical group, right? They, they gave themselves that, um, that label. They embraced that language and um, they named a journal radical therapist. Um, and then on the other hand, you have so this mix of ideas and therapies and people that are operating outside the mainstream. So they're pushing against orthodox practice, they're rejecting pharmaceutical interventions, or they're fighting against um, involuntary hospitalization, or perhaps large mental hospitals altogether. And there's a whole long list of, uh, of sort of ideas like this. But, you know, these people um, or these ideas may not have been specifically radical. Uh, the, and the idea was not embraced by these ideas. So, um, you know, you mentioned Artie Lang, you know, you know, he didn't consider himself an anti-psychiatrist. And to my knowledge in the documents I've looked at, he didn't really refer to himself as a radical either. And he, uh, you mentioned uh, Claude Steiner, who was deeply uh, involved in the radical caucus he didn't refer to himself as an anti-psychiatrist. So, you know, coming up with a strict definition of radical psychiatry leads down um, rabbit holes, but we just have to be cognizant, I think, of um, who actually chose to describe themselves as an anti-psychiatrist uh, or as a radical, because that sort of um, that self-description matters vis-a-vis um, nomenclature or terms that we retrospectively place on people if you if you sort of see what i'm saying yeah absolutely yeah i guess i suppose what i was trying to get here was you know at the, you had uh, a breakdown in your book um you know about different ways of looking at these psychiatrists at the time um mm -hmm. sometimes through self-description so some of them some of them being more um you know, radical in their, in their treatments, some being radical in their philosophy. Um, uh, but, but, you know, the, the differences here between say reforming the discipline or completely changing it or mm -hmm. anti-psychiatry in the sense of completely removing it. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, so, so I was wondering if, uh, if you could maybe describe some of those differences, because I think it's important when we get to, um, say some of the more uh, what might be described as as new age treatments, um, mm -hmm. which we'll get to. But um, yeah, so so you know some of the contradictions here in terms of um, treatment versus philosophy, I guess. It's a great point, uh, and so in the book, as you rightly point out, uh, I, I list sort of the taxonomy uh, of radicalization. And this is something that emerged from the Radical Caucus group itself and was one of the documents that 
uh, I actually found um, when I was getting into the dusty and dirty archives. And this taxonomy um, uh, sort of creates a list of, uh, of measures, I guess, in different domains. And within these uh, domains, what you have is a way of trying to understand degrees of, uh, of radicalism within psychiatry. So again, as you rightly pointed out, at one end of the spectrum might be uh, psychiatrists who were um, licensed, obviously, working within the APA, who felt it was important to uh, who demolish the, the APA infrastructure altogether and move away uh, from sort of an insurance-based um, uh, for-profit um, medical model in the United States, whereas others um, who um, adopted the, the radical uh, label uh, felt that um, uh, it, it was important, um, less radically, if you will, um, that you know they move away from an asylum system, move away from the use of electroconvulsive therapy, and think more seriously about the adoption of um, community mental health uh, centers. So I suppose what I'm just trying to underline is that there is a whole um, variance uh, when it comes to what uh, radicals um, actually felt and believed, which informed how they uh, operated, not only with their colleagues in the APA, but how they uh, interacted um, with patients, uh, with patient consumers, uh, how they operated um, within the medical marketplace more generally. Yeah, and I think this is such an important history for, for just that point, right? I mean, I think that so much of these, of these like radical psychiatrists have often been painted as strictly anti-psychiatrists. Um, Correct. And so, and so, so um, there's actually a lot more nuance here. Um, and that's particularly the case with, with the radical caucuses you brought up. So we're talking about here, um, when we say APA, we are talking about the American Psychiatry Association. Um, so um, how did this radical caucus come about? And, and you know, what, what sort of impact did they have on the profession um, in, insofar as we can talk about impact? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I, th- I guess the first thing I'd say is that the Radical Caucus was pretty small for the most part. I, I mean, I don't have exact figures for how many members there were. So it's just like one small subgroup of the American Psychiatric Association, which had um, over uh, 10,000 members in uh, the late 1960s. It could have been 11, 12,000 members. So, I mean, I don't want... Uh, anyone to think necessarily that psychiatry as a whole in the U.S. was radicalized because mm-hmm. they were, you know, this is one group, one pocket, and you know, very um, specific people that uh, I'm, I'm talking about. But I, th- I think telling the, those stories um, is pretty important. You know, it's pretty vital to tr- sort of unpack these ideas within uh, mental medicine. Um, so, look, a lot was happening. Uh, in 68, 69, which is really when the the caucus uh, sees its moment of uh, formation. So 
Like, I don't have to tell you as a historian of this period uh, or sociologist of this period in mental medicine, uh, there's tons of debates, which I've already alluded to. Um, but at the same time, uh, you've got a lot of bubbling ferment um, with the rights revolution, the civil rights movement, uh, women's rights, um, the rights of um, certain other groups, whether or not it was uh, American Indians or um, or, or um, uh, homosexual groups in the United States. So, I mean, you're, you're seeing this sort of like bubbling ferment around uh, sort of certain countercultural ideas, uh, changing ways of thinking about military intervention um, in, in Southeast Asia. And this, uh, I make the case, directly informs uh, the, the emergence of the Radical Caucus uh, that you know, you're seeing that um, that these folks uh, they're 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 pretty in tune with what's happening. Um, they're pretty in tune with uh, actually things that we're talking about right now in 2021. Whether or not it's you know disenchantment and dislocation with our pandemic or um, political divides uh, or poverty, I mean they're thinking about uh, violence and sexism. Uh, just like we are thinking about this in 2021. And sort of that kind of gives rise to this uh, this group in, in the American Psychiatric Association. Yeah, I think you, uh, on page uh, 43 of your book, you say, um, in 1968, the radicals first coalesced as a group at the APA's annual meeting in Boston under the rubric, Psychiatrists for Action on Racism in the Urban Crisis. And I think, you know, the, the, this idea of... Um, this idea of psychology and psychiatry today just now tackling like structural racism, it's like if we look back, actually they were saying a lot of the same things then, as you just, as you just said. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to, to make that comparison because it does seem to be ongoing. Um, and perhaps if, if more of this history would have been available sooner, you know that, that that maybe maybe wouldn't have to repeat it so much. Um, but, Isn't that uh, interesting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I um, was wondering because you do you do bring up some of the issues around like the, the domestic sphere and uh, and women and feminism. So um, yeah, what what was also going on uh, in terms of thinking about? you know, uh, mental medicine and gender at this time. Sure. Yeah. So when you think about the radical caucus, it also, you can break it down even further because there were sort of subgroups within this radical caucus that had their own specific, um, ideas and agendas. Some, uh, involved the civil rights movement, uh, and the support of African-Americans, uh, in, and perhaps dealing with problems um, within urban areas um, that you, you referenced just then. But also there were um, members who cared very much about how um, uh, feminism and women um, operated um, within the United States and how psychiatry uh, institutionalized maybe gender norms uh, or the nuclear family how psychiatry uh, acted as a uh, method of surveillance and a, a means to police 
women in the household and in, I guess, the United States more generally. So that might have been through, uh, you know, remediation of behavior. It might have been through um, uh, intervention with psychotropic medicines. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, feminists uh, uh, and radicals who were saying that we needed to think seriously about the ways in which psychiatry um, uh, weaponized uh, and potentially harmed um, you know, gender within society and that there needed to be recasting and rethinking uh, of what have been referred to as mother's little helpers, uh, the ways uh, in which um, women uh, were uh, hospitalized involuntarily, uh, and in, in which has been chronicled in several uh, really excellent books. So, yeah, I guess just to answer your question, you know, race and gender uh, were like really uh, maybe not suddenly of interest in society, far from, uh, because you're going through this rights revolution, um, but it seemed like they were rising to the fore with certain radicals um, in the APA, um, that they were, that some of these uh, figures who um, I mentioned in the book uh, really are pulling on these ideas um, and, and sort of suggesting that uh, the APA needed to embrace the ideas of, um, of change, essentially. Yeah, and I think that, um, that, you know, it almost seems inevitable that they would professionally have to start dealing with what were issues outside the profession, right? That, that, that there'd be some pressure there. Um, but there's also some pressure from within, um, as, as mentioned, um, to think about different treatments. Um, so perhaps we can move on to some different treatments. Uh, one of them, one that I think would be interesting to talk about would be transactional analysis. So thinking about um, the work here of Eric Byrne and and uh, and then um, who's the mentor then of of Claude Steiner. So if we could maybe talk a little bit about them and what what was sort of refreshing about this approach and what was maybe seen as as radical at least compared to other um, treatments at the time. Yeah, so transactional analysis, uh, as you pointed out, is created uh, by Eric Byrne. Uh, he is uh, sort of a Canadian-American uh, MD, trains uh, in McGill, trains in California, and is sort of operating with, within that uh, California context, which is, I suppose, kind of one of the themes of Break On Through as well, is a sort of what's happening in California uh, in mental medicine. Transactional analysis uh, is, um, is one of these therapies that uh, sort of it is pressing up against the mainstream psychoanalysis and taking psychoanalytic techniques and uh, maybe sort of reformulating them to a certain extent. So Eric Byrne had a tortured relationship in San Francisco with uh, the psychoanalytic community, which forced him uh, to theorize differently about how individuals, uh, how individuals um, interacted with themselves, but also interacted uh, with, with each uh, with each other. Uh, not to be too simple about the whole thing, um, but transactional analysis. Um, 
when it was operationalized, um, soon found a pretty um, robust audience. Uh, he not only did um, Byrne sort of find a lot of um, mental uh, health professionals in psychology and psychiatry gravitating towards him, uh, but he also uh, sold boatloads of books. Like people just loved his books. And uh, so, so it became, uh, I wouldn't say faddish, but it certainly became uh, very well-known uh, transactional analysis in the United States uh, and more generally. One of my favorite parts of the book, uh, Chad, is um, sort of some of the, the tapes that I found that's, that talk uh, um, that basically illustrate the relationship between uh, Eric Byrne, Claude Steiner, and some of the other transactional analysis. Uh, Byrne loved to smoke this pipe, and he uh, he would uh, you know every week have people uh, over to you know his really nice house and have a jam session where they talk through uh, important cases. And there are lots of tapes of these that you know his budding historians or other researchers can get a hold of that sort of showcase the sometimes tense back and forth, sometimes funny back and forth between the different transactional uh, participants. That sounds so fascinating. Yeah. I was, I was really intrigued by that. Um, yeah. I would love to, would love to hear those sometime. Um, I would have loved to be in there too, with, uh, you know, actually oh, sit yeah. there and, and listen to what was going on. I mean, after these parties wrapped up and after they got through their case studies, um, burn, um, would crank up the music and everyone would, you know, have a, a, a dance party. <laughs> yeah, this does. So this does sound very Californian. So I guess it's a good transition to then talk about um, some, some of these uh, sort of new age therapy institutes, like the, of course the Esalen being, Esalen being the Institute being the, probably the most famous of them, um, the most influential. So what, what, what sort of therapies were being offered there and, and, and how might we see this, this influence sort of ongoing from, from this point in the, in the um, 60s and 70s? Yeah, so the Esalen Institute is, um, I guess, started up in 63 or 62. I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head. But it, um, the Esalen was created in again in California, right? So, um, it, and what it did was, it, it I suppose the underlying philosophy there was um, uh, integrating sort of humanistic psychology in conjunction with Eastern philosophies, uh, embracing holism and wellness, embracing personal transformation. And that had to do with not only mind, but also the body and the spirit. Uh, and Esalen was uh, a place where transactional analysis was taught. So Eric Byrne uh, was there and transactional analysis theory was used. Uh, but to your question, you had um, folks like uh, the psychologist Carl Rogers was there. And he was um, teaching elements of the human potential movement, uh, uh, which included notions of existentialism and phenomenology. And um, then besides that, you had at Esalen, 
let's see, Gestalt theory was also offered to visitors at Esalen. So Gestalt comes from the German uh, psychiatrist uh, Fritz Perl. And so the idea here is uh, placing a greater emphasis on sensation and perception, uh, bodily awareness and emotion. Uh, and then I guess thirdly, what else? You had Maslow. So Abraham, uh, it's Abraham, right? That's the first name? Yes. So Abraham Maslow um, uh, taught um, the notion of self-actualization. So probably um, everyone listening to this podcast knows that he came up with the idea of the hierarchy of needs. And so he was offering lectures um, to everyone there. So Esalen, you know, it's it's a funny it's a funny story. A lot of, a lot of folks have written about Esalen, and I think it matters now um, if we want to connect this history to the present because it's still kicking around, and you don't have to probably go much farther than thinking about the psychedelic Renaissance um, in twenty twenty one to think about that um, contemporary relevance. So. You know, some of the leading lights and um, the biggest intellectuals studying psychedelics right now are still going to the Esalen uh, and, and sharing notions uh, uh, around um, personal transformation and um, perceptual changes associated with, uh, you know, things like DMT and, uh, and psilocybin and LSD. So, I mean, it's still, it's still there. It's, it's, you know, I wouldn't say... It, um, its fame has diminished, really. Uh, it's it's still pushing certain new age therapies. Yeah, so I think that uh, now that we've talked a bit about some of these different approaches um, within the profession, some of these different treatments, um, perhaps it would make sense to talk about um, something that was brought up very briefly before, but about... Um, uh, people from the outside, basically, or people who who are uh, less of a focus when it comes to the history of psychiatry, um, which is the voices of the patients themselves, of the consumers. Um, so what can you tell us about some of these patient and, and consumer movements and, and organizations, you know, such as the Mental Patients Liberation Front or the Insane Liberation Front, you know, where, where and how did they emerge and, and what effects did they maybe have on, on the uh, psychiatric practice? Mm. Yeah, good question. I mean, I, I generally agree that there has been too much of a focus on elites, if you will, you know, the doctors or the policymakers in the, in the literature when it comes to, to um, history of psychology or, or mental medicine. I, so I generally agree with that. Uh, I think there has been some great work, though. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of people like uh, uh, Skull or, or Nancy Tomes or Hilary Marland. They're, so, I mean, it's not like that totally hasn't been told. Um, some voices um, are, are there. Um, you know, I guess I'd, I'd also say there's there's probably still a lot to learn even though, you know, that those voices have been heard and made more audible in, in the literature, I still, I think there's really quite a bit still to learn about the role of grassroots activism and 
and the patient perspective um, mm-hmm. in, in the in the in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, my period mostly, but then in lots of other historical periods too. So right. uh, you know, rather than get in the weeds about specific groups, maybe I'll just try and answer the question more broadly if that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess when I was writing Break on Through, I thought it was really, really valuable to think about how patient movements worked with psychiatrists and psychologists, and then then how sometimes they weren't able to, or how um, how you know medical practitioners or, or or what have you were rejected by patient movements. So I tried to sort of underline that tension a little bit in the book because that interaction between patient movements and um you know and and healthcare providers that that's really complicated and really i think important um moving forward too um for the training of of um mental health providers so i mean i think there are a couple lessons maybe that i can pull very quickly from the book. One is that you can't really think of the patient movement as sort of like one monolithic group at all. That mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that, that's a, a recipe for disaster. Um, so there, there are lots of different labels and various names, um, and lots of different agendas and lots of different ideas. So you already, uh, we already talked about anti-psychiatry, um, uh, and certainly a lot of patients um, use that label. Then there was, you know, mental health consumer. There's mad liberation. Some people called them survivors, called themselves survivors, psychiatric survivors. You know, other people said they were inmates. So I guess if people are writing about this, and I think they really, really should be writing about the patient perspective in the future, that was sort of one thing to underline from my perspective is that nomenclature and motivation is really important when thinking about these these groups and people um and you know besides that um i just i just find it like super amazing to research uh about patient movements and that was one of the best things um about about the experience of writing the book honestly uh, is is getting to see how um, patients, um, you know, what kind of impulses uh, actuated them, you know, how they were able to work with with others or chose deliberately not to work with mental health professionals and why. Um, and so I, I tell a couple of those stories in the book. Yeah, no, it's a very fascinating history. Um, and speaking of fascinating histories you have another book uh strange trips fa- uh, fantastic book as well um in this in strange trips um you know you do talk quite a bit about some of the tensions around drug policy and law um and treatments and so i was thinking perhaps um here we can link to your uh one of your last chapters and break on through um dealing with some of the uh, treat, drug treatments at the time and, and some of these tensions as well between, um, you know, legality and illegality and, um, and, and why, you know, why these drug treatments were, were 
suddenly you have such focus um, at this time? Yeah. Uh, so where I'm coming from in that chapter, uh, in, in it's about substances in the 70s. Where I'm coming at, uh, so the angle I'm taking, I suppose, is you know, how does mental health knowledge get wrapped up in discussions of drugs? And then how do ideas around drugs inform mental health policy, right? So I, I see a real important back and forth between the regulation of things like MDMA, marijuana, LSD, and, and, and how um, people have access to proper therapies, so with LSD, you know, this is a substance that um, was identified in the, in the 40s, late 30s, early 40s, and then was considered to be a viable um, treatment, uh, an object of study, uh, all the way up to the mid-1960s, late 1960s in, in the United States when it was then placed on Schedule One. A lot of patients potentially lost the opportunity to be treated with this substance, uh, which is you know problematic from proponents of psychedelic psychiatry. So that was one, you know, sort of one little anecdote in the book. With marijuana or cannabis, depending on um, what term you use, uh, mental health professionals have debated cannabis for a long time. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's one of those uh, substances that's, that creates camps. And what I try to do and break on through is illustrate uh, that, that mental health professionals reified the notion that uh, cannabis uh, created psychosis, that it led to... Uh, depravity and crime, uh, that it led to all sorts of problems. But then on the other hand, you have certain uh, radical uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who are suggesting that, you know, like, let's tap the brakes here for a second. Um, maybe not all the evidence is in. Wouldn't it be clever if we thought through uh, the evidence base here before we make um, statements about how marijuana um, actually causes mental health problems. So, you know, these are just a couple of, uh, a couple of ideas that sort of pop out in that chapter. And um, it, I think that it matters, obviously, uh, nowadays, because uh, there's real critique of the, the psychotherapeutic interventions that are available for people who are suffering from major depressive disorder or from post-traumatic stress disorder, and they're looking for alternatives to what's on the market. So that's why you're seeing uh, the return of uh, LSD. That's why we're seeing more and more uh, studies um, for psilocybin and DMT. That's why we're seeing uh, all this uh, money being plowed into, uh, into the psychedelic space. Um, and we're seeing major investors uh, supporting uh, startup companies like never before. And more and more mental health professionals are being um, enlisted in this project. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's another one of those points, you know, in, in your history where it's like, well, is it really still history, right? It's still, it's still going on. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, and sort of interesting to go back and see, you know, the kinds of debates that we're having then around the safety or around the, the, um, medical uses, the medicinal uses of these drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. well, before, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you, Last couple questions. Um, one a- about your book, um, since there it's it's so enriching. There's so much in there. There's obviously a lot of topics that we didn't uh, get to discuss. You know, if we had more time, I wish we could just talk all day about it. But um, were there any other highlights that you wanted to bring up? Were, were there any really surprising findings or anything else you wish to highlight about your your book before we wrap up? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, I'd like to talk long too. Uh, I'd talk longer, although, you know, it's one of those things where after a while I start boring myself. So I appreciate that uh, I don't want to bore you or anyone else. It's, uh, you know, one of, one of the, the things that I really enjoyed about the book and uh, writing this history, I suppose, is um, being slightly experimental with the subject matter. Uh, I, I, I just want to sort of tip my hat to some of the great work that's out there already. Uh, and at the same time, I wanted to make sure that um, in the future, um, new scholars are, are thinking holistically and inter, uh, with, through an interdisciplinary lens when it comes to mental medicine. It's, it's, in my view, it's vital um, that we're, we're thinking along uh, multiple intersecting uh, channels and lines when when we're trying to tell these important stories. That's I suppose that would be my 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 tuppence worth for you uh, and and the audience that you know sometimes it's not enough just to tell the the legal and biomedical history. Sometimes you gotta insert some uh, films and, and literature and music into the story. Yeah, which which also makes it. I mean, one it makes it more I think interesting. But it also gives it this kind of nuance, you know. I mean, just to think of these professionals as only being influenced by other professionals when, like, they're part of culture too, right? <laughs> like, they're they're, yeah. they're part they're being exposed they're being exposed to to um, films and music as well. Um, so it's yeah, it's really interesting all this history. Um, before we wrap up, yeah, I wanted to ask, um, what are you working on now? I'm at the final stages of a project and I'm looking forward to the completion of it for sure. It's called uh, Cannabis Global Histories. It's um, it's coming out, I guess, this year. So it's been a good three years in the making. Uh, and so the idea behind it is to you know tell the history of cannabis um, discuss its policy, uh, how it has operated within society, um, but way beyond just the United States or, uh, and I guess North America. It, so I wanted to try and tell it, um, you know, tell that story of cannabis from, um, from South Africa, from the angle of um, uh, the Middle East, uh, from Iran and um, Palestine and from loads of other places just so we have a bigger better more holistic picture of cannabis um, as we move forward 
Yeah, sounds fascinating. Look forward to to reading about that. Uh, well, thanks again for joining us, and um, I hope everyone who listens uh, checks out your book. Thanks so much.